This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and we have another fantastic show for all of you, our Standard Orbiters in our red shirts out there in Trek FM land. We are going to be continuing our Essentials Viewing show. We are going to be covering Season 3 on this podcast, and I couldn't imagine doing it with this uh, with a better team than what I have right now. We have Mr. A. Taz in the number two microphone. How are you, Jeff? Well, I'm doing pretty good. I, uh, I took an alternate method of uh, time travel this time, trying to avoid some of that Atavacron leg. And uh, I, I think it turned out pretty good, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, it's a little iffy using uh, untested methods. You know, we're in season three. There's a very good chance that there's going to be a lot of A. Taz reference in today's show a good chance i'd say i wouldn't say a great chance (laughs) i'd say more than good chance (laughs) and you sound better and speaking of sounding better we have the chief with us chief ken trip how are you chief i'm doing all right commodore uh things are doing better feeling much better this week which is great and uh mr ataz is looking very spry for going through his new time travel device so i'm i'm really looking forward to getting through season three this is going to be a very interesting show yeah, we were um, we're talking before the show, and I think the three of us all agreed that while season three has uh, a handful of really great episodes, there's a lot of fluctuation and highs and lows in season three. Probably, if it's fair to say, probably the most unstable of the three seasons of TOS, and that's what's going to make the show super fun to do because I think I think our lists are going to be incredibly diverse and. Probably we will converge probably lower down the list. When I say lower down the list, I'm talking about in the three, two, and one spot than than we have in in our lists past. And speaking of our lists past, I have compiled our list for the previous podcast, and that would be podcast 120 for season two. So for season two, we were pretty close on our lists, and we were able to get four out of five of the episodes in agreement. And starting with number one, we all decided uh, that the Doomsday Machine was the top pick for the essentials on season two, followed by Amok Time as number two, Journeyed Babel as number three, and Mirror Mirror in the fourth spot. 
we had two votes for the ultimate computer, and that throws it into the tiebreaker situation with the other choices that I will be posting on the Babel conference when this show, well, actually, um, before this show drops, and I will be doing it so that we can get all of the choices for season two and for season three when we discuss the final installment of this essentials collection, which will be the top TOS. And we have a fantastic format ready for you when we get to that particular episode. But for now, we are going to be deliberating on season three. And just to review the format for what we're doing, we have chosen the top seven episodes that we believe, and when I say we, that would be Atos, Chief, and myself, that we believe best represent Star Trek, and not necessarily our favorites or the nostalgic favorites, but what we believe would represent the choices that we would hand to somebody who is new to Star Trek or trying to understand what Star Trek in general is all about. And that's really difficult when it comes to season three, wouldn't you say, Ken? Very, very difficult, yes. It is a, I guess, a collage of uh, various episodes that go from the extremely good to the, oh my God, I can't believe they, they actually produced this thing. So yeah, I would say that's accurate, sir. I would I would classify that as uh, extreme peaks and valleys. <laughs> exactly. And that's the toughest thing about these lists. The peaks could be the nostalgic favorites, but not necessarily the best episodes that represent Star Trek and vice versa. So... Let's just jump right into it. We have a new order that we are going to be doing for our rotation. I'll start off, and then Ataz will take the center position, and then we will anchor it with the chief. So, drum roll, please. My first pick, this is pick number seven. My pick for pick number seven is episode 23, All Our Yesterdays. Mr. Atos has a giant frown on his face. He's like, why would you do that to number seven? Well, here are my criteria when I was picking. I mean, we, we listed our criteria for the show, but I had a lot of tiebreaker situations, if you will. I mean, I, I really had to look at these episodes and, and find the key points that would either prevent a show from placing higher on the list or completely just not making the list altogether. And when I was watching season three... I felt like there were a lot of spiritual bookends to some of the episodes that I've seen either in season one or season two. I called this episode actually the bookend to City on the Edge of Forever, spiritually. I felt that we all know the the plot, so we're not really going after the plot of these because I think that a lot of our viewers know the plot. Um, but this was Spock's emotional episode. This was his Edith Keeler moment. This is when Spock... Um, started to revert. Um, he was trapped in the past and he reverted back to his Vulcan self. Logic was starting to fail him. His uh, emotional and repressed Vulcan start, start, side started to bubble forth. And in the end, very much like, like Kirk did with McCoy, you know, McCoy also had to do with Spock and pull him out of the situation and remind him of his duty to Starfleet and remind him that the mission came first and to Spock had to place his own personal feelings aside. Yes, he did have feelings in this episode because of what was happening to him in terms of the um, the temporal mechanics through the Atavacron. So he had to leave Zarebeth behind. And when he returned to the future, he knew that she died a long time ago. So 
but he remembers it as if it was the second he stepped through the Atavacron. That's how I felt when Kirk realized what he had to leave behind with Edith Keeler and, and, and what he had to sacrifice. But in terms of a story structure, that was so strong for me to choose it as seven, but not strong enough for it to rise higher on the list. And then also, uh, just to tie it future forward, the novels, we talked about this before, Jeff, Yesterday's Son, uh, that's a huge sequel mm-hmm. to this episode and a beloved novel. Um, I believe there was another one, Time for Yesterday, you mentioned. Yep. And uh, there was um, reference to it in the animated series as well. Um, sort of. Yeah, they, it was. Uh, they they made some vague references to other time travel adventures, but uh, yesteryear, uh, just because of the nature of the animated series, it was pretty uh, quick paced, so they didn't spend too much time on anything. Yeah, so it just had a lot of threads moving forward. It it represented probably one of Spock's finer moments in season three. And I just thought it was a really good job. Another great McCoy-Spock relationship building episode for the world building of Star Trek. So all our yesterdays, pick number seven. How about you, Jeff? Uh, for number seven, I'm going to have to go with Spock's brain. Uh, got the uh, the shirt to prove it. <laughs> um, I love it. We've discussed the episode at length on uh, previous, uh, warp, uh, previous episode of uh, Standard Orbit. Um, it's... It doesn't deserve the hate that it gets, I think. Um, it started out really strong. It did a what Star Trek always does. It takes a current topic, it puts a science fiction spin on it, and it tries to say, well, what if? And then plays with that and makes, uh, you know, just kind of a, a, a an interesting tale out of it. And it was great up until, you know, about the last third of the episode, and it kind of fell apart. Um, but that's also fairly representative of the third season because the third season, like we said, it has its peaks and its valleys. And I think this episode kind of is both the first two thirds of the episode. It's one of the peaks of the season. It starts out really, really strong. And then at the end of it just kind of falls apart. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that Spock's brain, it literally started off like really strong right out of the gate and it just lost a lot of steam at the end. But you can't judge the entirety of that episode with the last, say, 15 to 20 minutes of what happened. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with 48 minutes of, of television footage and four acts. And I would say two and a half or two and three quarters of that four act system was very good and very strong. So, OK, uh, we have Spock's brain at number seven for Atas. And Chief, what do you have for number seven? Well, amazingly, we're aligned, Mr. Ataz. I've got Spock's brain as well. And so I'm sure early. it has a lot to do with the oh. fact that we... Yeah. we. I know we covered this in length. And under the criteria that we were looking at, what is essential viewing? Well, you know, if you're a real big movie buff uh, who hasn't seen Plan 9 from Outer Space, especially if you're a, a science fiction fan, right? I mean, it's considered the, the worst movie ever made, and it's hilarious. Now... I could argue that Spock's brain is not the worst Star Trek episode ever ever made, but it definitely has that attached to it. And as Jeff pointed out, and as we pointed out on the show a few few weeks ago, that the episode itself starts off great and then falls really, really flat. 
But it is just one of those things where if you're going to get into the essential viewing of Star Trek and you want to have conversations and you really want to engage with other Star Trek fans, Spock's brain comes up all the time. And that is why I thought that this one, though it certainly isn't in the top seven favorites of all time, I think it's number seven for season three for that reason. And again, that's just we we covered that when we did Spock's brain. And we wanted to make a point of that because you have to take a look at these episodes with new eyes. And a lot of the time, episodes like Spock's brain, they suffer the the piling on of negative reviews over time in history. And that's one of the reasons why we actually wanted to do this essentials list, because are these episodes really where they should be? on some of the lists that are out there in the tens and hundreds of fan lists or quote unquote professional lists or um, quote unquote these uh, these uber geek sites that you go to. Sometimes I just feel like they are just added there because they either just agree with the status quo or just don't really want to do their homework and watch these episodes for what they're worth. So having Spock's brain on here twice this early, I think that actually shows a lot of merit for the episode. But it is, you know, it's it's awesome that it's here on our top seven. Okay, so for top seven, we have All Our Yesterdays and Spock's Brain for two votes, which is pretty awesome. So we're going into pick six. Now, my pick six is probably something that I'm sure fans would probably want to see a little bit higher. And I have a very serious reason for why I have it on the list, but it hasn't made my top five. And that's the Tholian Web. I call it the bookend to the naked time because of of the sheer mass insanity that happens to the crew, a la the naked time. And uh, it just felt spiritually uh, in the same vein of it. But that, the reason why I chose the Tholian Web to be on the list is because it is one of those quintessential episodes of Star Trek that fans, either steeped in the lore or casual fans, know and talk about all the time. But the reason why I didn't have it higher on the list is because in my review of these episodes, the one thing that I felt that really fell short and didn't sell me was how fast McCoy turned on Spock during the course of this episode. I mean, we're talking about two individuals that have served with each other, at least as as we know, for a couple of years already. And they've been through everything together. And they've been through instances without the captain, with the captain. McCoy and Spock have had their disagreements and agreements. And they've really gone after each other in the last couple of years. But then all of a sudden, McCoy just goes further in this episode than I've ever seen him. And so quickly. I just didn't feel that as being believable for his character. And even though that they were in interface, um, interspace or interphasic space, I didn't feel that that justified what McCoy turned into, you know, in the course of the middle and the end, because he was still savvy enough to figure out the Theragrin derivative, which means that his sanity was still intact, which means that his emotional state was under his complete control. So he chose to be that way. And it just didn't sit well for me. And that's why it's at number six. But I loved what it did. I loved that it gave us the threads moving forward or backwards, if you will, into Enterprise for In a Mirror Darkly 1 and 2 because it was the Tholian web and the interphasic space temporal rift that sent the Defiant back to Archer's time. 
and lodged in the asteroid. So that gave us that really cool opportunity for storytelling. So for my pick for number six is the Tholian web. How about you, Jeff, your pick for number six? Well, I went with the paradise syndrome. Um, I thought it was a, a really interesting concept. You have uh, a group of native American humans that have been transplanted to another planet and apparently have no idea that that is the case for them. They still live as their ancestors did hundreds of years earlier. Um, and then here comes Kirk. <laughs> but I mean, it suffered a bit from the portrayal of native Americans on television and film in the 1960s. And I think if it was made again today, that would be accounted for. And I think it would be a stronger episode for that. But, uh, um, I, I think uh, despite that, it's still a really interesting and solid episode. And Kurt being Kirok and his love interest there being a fan favorite Miramani. Correct? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. And one of Kirk's several, I'm assuming, children, um, but unfortunately this one never made it. Was this a tough choice for you? Was this one of um, the ones that was either on the fence? Yeah. Because it's closer one, towards seven. Yeah, you this know? one was on the fence for me. Um, I almost went with something else instead, but uh, I, I ended up picking this. What was the tiebreaker moment for you when you're really thinking about it? I think it was the just kind of the emotional arc for uh, Spock and McCoy trying to get back to find Kirk and then Kirk being amnesiac the entire episode. And when he finally realizes at the end who he is and it just kind of snaps and uh, everything falls into place for him. I mean, they're really pushing the, uh, the Kirk Spock and McCoy relationship Mm -hmm. really hard. I mean, it's not like it didn't work. It's just that that was pretty much what it was all about. I'm sure that all of the other cast members felt that and they felt that their presence was, diminished a lot in this season. I think that's pretty much safe to say. I think also uh, it kind of shows because this is also the first season that uh, McCoy is listed as one of the starring roles in the opening credits. Because before it was just Shatner and Nimoy. And now this season they added DeForest Kelly. Right. No, you're right. Yep. Okay. So that's a very strong pick for number six. How about you, Chief? My number six was All Our Yesterdays. So based on a lot of the things that you said when you chose it for number seven is the same reason that I chose it for number six. It's it's essential viewing. It really drives home, I think, the history of um, of Spock and his ancestors. Uh, it has that that same, I guess that that same turmoil between between him and McCoy. And at the same time, I I, I like the. Uh, the whole Kirk aspect of this episode as well, being stuck in London and uh, being accused for a wit- as, as a witch and, and, and just that whole direction of, of the episode. But um, I think, too, when I was watching these episodes when I was in high school and younger, and then as time went on, I did read Yesterday's Sun, and I think that it just has that nostalgic value to it. So I tried to really watch it through the lens of a new person, but I think I had a little bit of bias in there just because I really did enjoy that book. And every time I go back, and of course, you know, we have the uh, we have the wonderful Mr. Ataz with us every week now. So all that together uh, just brought that to the uh, to the forefront of the list at number six. I also think that Marriott Hartley's performance as Zarabeth was fantastic, and it allowed 
allowed Leonard Nimoy to really make that and sell that emotional connection. You know, the one thing that Leonard Nimoy is really good at in season three is, is setting himself apart from the Spock that you know. There are so many instances here, and we're going to get to a couple of them because I don't want to spoil my own choices, but he really was not Spock, Spock anymore. I say Spock in quotes. He was trying to explore, I think, different facets of the human side of his character as opposed to just the strict logical side of his character. All of our yesterdays gave him that ability because, you know, he regressed in time, which allowed him to be that that um, emotional and passionate person. And I think that he actually was. Um, but, and also, uh, there's a really good point that I was reading in um, when I was doing my research, that Spock regressed further, but McCoy didn't regress as much, meaning that humanity came further along in their development and was more stable than Vulcans were in terms of their warlike nature and their, and the emotional turmoil inside. So I thought that was kind of interesting based on the regression of when they stepped through the Atavicon and into the past. Um, but that's again, a great choice. And we're already two on yesterday, two on brain. So that's, it's not as far off as we would think in our choices. So great pick, great pick. Okay. So we are in the top five and the top five is where, is where the money's made. So for, <laughs> for my top five pick, my pick number five is going to be episode 21, the cloud minders. And there are going to be a, a couple of you probably scratching your head and saying, what's this, the cloud? Are you kidding me? The cloud minders that that episode was, you know, forgettable. And I'm like, well, Kind of yes and kind of no. When you take a look at these episodes, and again, looking at it with the lens that we are looking through for our essential picks, the reason why I like this episode and it was able to beat out Tholian Webb in All Our Yesterdays is because I liked how direct it was in terms of the class structure war that was going on with the uh, the, the citizens of Stratos and the Troglodytes. I mean, they made it a direct point to even like lift you know Troglodytes from Troglodytes. That that's not any stretch of the imagination, you know. If you know what what they were saying there, so you had the people a high up on top, and then you had the people below separated from pretty much like a a sense of ignorance, saying that well, the people below they would never benefit from being on high or being educated because this is who they are. This is all they'll ever be without understanding or giving them the chance. What I also liked about this episode is that it had um, what I call the uh, the bookend or the spiritual essence of a taste of Armageddon because in a taste of Armageddon on a mini R seven, you had a society that was locked in this very stagnant cultural state. They were, they were at war and uh, they were going to disintegration chambers because culturally that is what they've been told to do so over hundreds of generations. And they never questioned why they just did the same thing here. The same thing with the, the, uh, the citizens of Stratos and the troglites. They never questioned why they just do. But the troglates were finally, they had leadership there that were trying to ask questions. They were trying to make a better life for these people. They weren't saying that they don't want to work anymore. They're just saying that give us just a little bit more opportunity. But the leader there, and I have this written down, High Advisor Places was very much like an on, Amon 7. And he was just like, no, this is the way things are. Nothing's going to change because nothing should change. And I always liked it when Starfleet, when Star Trek challenged that status quo through Kirk because Kirk's like, I don't care what happens. As long as you give me, 
you know, this material that I need to, to take to this planet to combat this, this uh, bacteriological plague that's happening. You're a member of Starfleet and you are or the Federation of Planets. You are obliged to provide us this service. And you're also obliged to help your other fed, uh, fellow Federation planets. And this other, you know, the planet was saying like, no, or the, uh, the leaders were saying, no, uh, no, we don't, we don't operate that way. And Kirk's like, no, nah, actually you do. That's in the charter. So, you know, pony up or else I'm going to have to do something about it. And he did. So I found that Kirk was being this mediator in almost like this giant labor dispute. And I thought that was kind of refreshing for, for seeing it in season three, this early on. So my pick for number five is the cloud minders. How about you, Atos? Well, it's interesting because I almost went with this instead of the paradise syndrome for many of the same reasons. And actually one of the things that knocked it out for me was the fact that these people are Federation member race, and yet they've got this whole thing going on with this society. And it makes a very interesting question of what is going on with the Federation that their their admissions process that planets with um, societies split up like this can get in. You know, we saw something similar with the um, um, Elon of Troyes too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very well possible that you had an ambassador like Robert Fox who was trying to negotiate a peace treaty on a Meteor 7. And maybe the ambassador, you know, that was handling, you know, the the politics on Stratos, uh, they didn't quite follow it by the guidelines. They wanted the resources at pretty much um, at any cost. So they kind of fudged the uh, the entrance exam in a way. They're like, hey, you know what? Well, you know what? It's, it's kind of like... Um, in real time politics, we'll worry about that when the time comes. Yeah, and maybe and the time did come. The, uh, the conflict with the Klingons too, because they needed resources, and these people had it. That's true. That, no, that's true. That's that's a large like again. This what I liked about this episode is I felt that there was more of a large scale story that was happening in terms of how, like, like you said, how the Federation was a little bit more loose in their policy when it came to so other member races. And how these member races were just kind of shrugging off their obligations on the charter. And I was like, hmm, that goes into deeper Federation politics. And that's what I liked about this particular episode. So, But your number five. Uh, my number five was the Savage Curtain. Um, this one, it gave us our first appearance of Kalos, of Colonel Green, of Surak. Oh, yes. And, you know, we had Space Abraham Lincoln. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I mean this this was a really interesting episode you know you had the Excalibians trying to explore the concept of good and evil because that was something that was foreign to them they didn't really have a concept of that and so they went into the minds of the crew of the Enterprise and they picked out the people from their minds who they felt best represented good and evil so I think it's also very interesting that the Kalis that we see in this episode and the Colonel Green that we see in this episode are probably not 100% representative of who those people really are because it's reflecting the biases of the crew whose minds that's being taken from. So when we saw both of those characters later on in uh, Next Generation and again in uh, Enterprise for Colonel Green, you know, they were a little bit different and I thought that was interesting. That's right. Another thread that goes all the way back to Enterprise mm-hmm. and kind of keeps it keeps reinforcing the point that the writers on Enterprise like Mike Sussman and then under Manny Cotto and a lot of the stuff that was happening in season four, they were paying more attention than people gave them credit mm-hmm. for when it came to the original series. Yeah. And yeah. this 
you know, like I said, it's a, it's a very interesting exploration of the concept, taking it from the science fiction aspect of, well, here's an alien species that doesn't understand it, and then makes it even more interesting because they're exploring it through the prism of the biases and perceptions of the crew. So that also tells us something about the crew at the same time. That's an excellent point. There is a little bit of this, this movement, um, almost kind of like an abstract, an abstraction of thought, uh, as the writers went through season three, where they were kind of, they, they were using almost these, these, um, these preconceived notions of what good and evil are, or what there, there's a lot of polarization that was going on, you know, with, um, identifying it through humanity. And I, th- I'm, I'm dancing around these points because I can't spoil my next couple of picks. That's why, but I want to, I want to <laughs> agree with you and say that, yes, I love the fact that they pulled these archetypes out of their minds that don't necessarily represent who they were, but they represent the archetype of the vessel of their feelings mm-hmm. or of their spirituality or of their belief system or how they believed that these people should have been who Abraham Lincoln was, who Kalis was, who Colonel Green was. So, yeah. And um, also, yeah, uh, was, you know, it, same thing on the other, uh, the other end of the spectrum with Sarek, or I mean, excuse me, with Surak. Yeah. Uh, because you have, this is Spock's perception of who Surak was. And later right. on when we actually sort of meet Surak through his Katra in enterprise, you know, He's a little bit of a different person. He's uh, got a little more of a sense of humor. He's a little more relatable. Right. Well, this is the, again, this is the historical mm-hmm. proppings, exactly. you know, of yeah. the teachings of Surak, not Surak himself. Right. So great pick. Uh, very interesting, too. How about you, Ken? Number five, your pick. Number five for me was Day of the Dove. This is an episode that I think is definitely essential viewing if you're a new Star Trek fan and really want to understand a lot about the show. And I think that uh, it also has a nice sci-fi element to it, too, as far as an alien coming in and taking control of things. But, you know, a quick synopsis is the the Enterprise finds a, a derelict uh, a Klingon ship and the crews wind up uh, at war with each other, constant violence, uh, and no one can die. And it's, uh, it's, it's where this alien being is just driven off the hate and the animosity towards each side and feeds off it. And through a lot of battles and a lot of, I guess, kind of thinking things through and, uh, you know, kind of working its way towards a, a diplomatic ending, I think that uh, you get a good view of the Klingons in this episode, truly what they what they what they stand for, and also that you can see that they can also be rational too at some point. So I really enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed it in the new HD version that they did it too. It just added a lot to the show. And you know, I'm always going to be one of those guys that uh, is going to like that that adventure. Uh, aspect to the show, but I'm also going to have, you know, when it has a nice point to it. And as we talk about a lot of these episodes in, in episode three, and some of the other ones that you guys have talked to, and some of the other ones that I'm going to be speaking with, you know, the endings don't always seem to um, to bring it home. Uh, but this one, it did, I thought. It, it, had a, it, had a, it had a really strong ending. And I think, it, you know, there, there was some, some clumsiness as this episode went along, but its, en- it's ending was sharp and, and somewhat optimistic and uh, I'll just never forget uh, Kang's backslap uh, of Captain Kirk. Oh, yeah. that was, <laughs> and that Kirk's was reaction. Really, he he, he yeah. didn't really quite dig that, but he had to play along. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but anyway, so my number five for essential viewing, again, is Day of the Dove. It's an interesting point that you brought uh, with the the energy being that was feeding off of hatred. Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a Next Generation episode, I think it was called Skin of Evil. Mm-hmm. Right. Where the tar monster was named Aramis or Armis or something like that. Armis. Right. Armis. And he was the he also fed off of the of um hateful and aggressive energy. Well, he was hateful and aggressive energy. The alien species that created him basically took all their negative emotions and like found a way to separate them from them physically and it became that creature. Right. So that it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this was another example of this. Well, the Day of the Dove was a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> Philip and the well, I'd the like TNG to see the two the crew. creatures come together. <laughs> you know, they you know one would feed off the other, and the other is like an infinite resource of hate. So you know they could coexist symbiotically, it's like an endless power battery, yeah. you know, for themselves. But the interesting thing about this example, this this energy creature, it's another one of those examples that. What's inside of you, it, it draws out what's inside of you and it draws out this like your almost your your primal or actual nature and it gives you that representation of is this who I really am? You know, is this always at the forefront? Because it was conflict that was always at the forefront that they were feeding off of. And obviously you have the relationship that Kirk had also, with the Klingons. Right. But it was also manipulating them, right? Into thinking that things and events had occurred when they didn't. You know, like Chekhov's brother's Paul, his brother Paul dying. Well, he didn't have a brother Paul. It, just that that kind of stuff. That uh, you know, th- this creature did put a lot of things in their heads that that wasn't reality. So, didn't he die in Arcanus Four? No, that was Ar- I thought Arcanus Four was the reference in this episode. Uh, no, no. Um, well, oh, was it Peter? It was. It, yeah, his brother Piotr or Peter or something like that, and. Yeah, he, uh, maybe it was Arcanus 4, but, uh, yeah, there was something that, uh, you know, he had this brother that was killed in, like, a Klingon attack or something, and so he hated Klingons. I think it was. And Chekhov never actually had a Klingon, or never actually had a brother. Right, it was all in his head. Yeah, Yeah. Chekhov was an only child. You heard it here. That's right. You heard it here first from Atos. <laughs> um, so, okay. So on episode five, we have the cloud minders, savage curtain and day of the dove, and they are all fantastic episodes, but we're nowhere closer to consolidating our lists here as previous episodes. Usually it happens around this number, which is going to be episode four. And uh, going back to what I was talking about when it, in, in terms of alien beings and th- th- trying to uh, pull out certain emotions or figments of imagination or, or emotions or, uh, that are rising to the surface, uh, my episode uh, pick for number four is Spectre of the Gun. And I call it the spiritual bookend to Arena. And the reason why I'm bringing up all of these examples is because in this episode, it's the, uh, the Melkotians, much like the Metrons, there are these kind of disembodied beings that are judging uh, humanity based on their savagery and it's up to Kirk and all of his crew that are stranded on, well, for all intents and purposes in Tombstone, Arizona to reenact the battle of the OK Corral to prove that the savagery doesn't exist anymore, no matter how much they try and force the point. So this is one of those iconic episodes where they're like, Oh wow. It's like, it's, it's the Western in a Western because Star Trek was always considered to be this wagon train Western to the stars Well, now you actually have Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Chekhov and Scotty. They're all 
in Western gear. Well, not in Western gear, but they're they're carrying six shooters. They represent the Clanton gang and they have to find a way to disarm without killing the Earps and Doc Holliday. And for the audience of 1969 or 1968 and 69, this must have been awesome because Westerns were huge at the time. And now you have a beloved science fiction show that came back and now they're mixing it in with a little bit of Western. But the one thing that I loved about this episode the most, and I know it was because of a cost saving measure, was the little bit of writing where they said that we have pulled out the fragments of your history and represented it in this time because they couldn't build full buildings. So they only built facades of tombstone. And I thought that was brilliant. It had this great ethereal and abstract quality to the storytelling. And it made sense because they just said that we we want to represent the cause of your destruction, not necessarily the full indulging of this uh, from every single detail. So, yeah, you only saw like half a mailbox or you saw like the, the front of, a, of a, a general store. I loved it. I loved every single aspect of this because I thought it worked. Uh, I know that a lot of people kind of cast this off as being uh, the most under budget and cheesiest looking of the episodes. But when you really look at the heart of what they're trying to say here, it's Star Trek to the letter. It is an alien being throwing this type of galactic judgment on humanity and humanity stepping up and rising to the occasion and the entire team working together to make Kirk's point. And just like the very end of Arena, where Kirk decided not to kill the Gorn captain, he said to the Metro, I was like, no, even though it's different, even though Spock mind melded with him and they didn't believe that the, the violence was real, the point is, is that they didn't believe that the violence existed in them anymore and proved the Melkosians wrong and lifted the death sentence off of them. So I thought that was fantastic. My pick for number four is Spectre of the Gun. Well, for number four, I went with Whom Gods Destroy. Um, I thought this was really interesting. It went uh, into a little bit of the Federation's history um, with uh, um, Captain Garth and uh, Garth of Izar and his being uh, one of Kirk's heroes. His strategies were required reading at the Academy for the Battle of Axanar and uh, how now, you know, the mighty have fallen. He was injured, got... Uh, healed thanks to the help of the Antosians, but their solution to help him ended up driving him crazy. And it's all about how this guy was not beyond redemption. Even though he had gone nuts, he had done horrible things, they were still able to bring him back. At the end of the episode, he's back to his old self and everything's okay again. I think this was a really interesting episode also because... In terms of iconic Star Trek moments, this is where we we get that famous quote, that queen to queens level three moment. And I know a lot of Star Trek fans that are even casual, they understand that. They remember that. They remember, obviously, Yvonne Craig as the only other time that we see an Orion slave girl. And they understand there's that great fight scene at the end with with Spock trying to suss out who is the real Kirk. There's a lot of great things going on with this episode. Mm -hmm. You're right. I totally agree. Yeah. 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 And this also, you know, like I was saying with the uh, the whole issue of mental illness, you know, in the 1960s, that was a big deal because mental illness was viewed in a very different way than it is now. Well, I also liked the uh, the guest starring um, a key Luke as Governor Corey. 
I always loved him in Kung Fu, but I always thought that he brought this great kind of diversity and presence because rarely, if ever, do you see in in Star Trek, aside from Sulu, an, an Asian American actor, male, female, um, male or female in a position of this kind of power. So, I mean, he was in charge of uh, the uh, the facility on Elba 2. So I thought it was great that he was in there and, and as part of the story. And um, it's one of my all-time favorite cosplays. So Star Trek Las Vegas, watch out because... There's a good possibility that I may be doing Governor Corey. So, <laughs> oh boy! How about how about you, Ken? How about your pick for uh, number four? Number four for me was Savage Curtain. So we're getting some alignment here as we go. Uh, a couple of things I'll point out. I don't want to retell the story you already told, but um, one of the things that that made this a very I thought compelling episode on top of all the topics that we talked about before was the tension. I don't know if you felt it the first time you watched it or the first few times when you go through it, but I, I just remember, you know, all the time going, Sorek, don't go, don't go, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, don't do this. Uh, it, it, I thought it, it showed a, a lot of, a lot of uh, moral high ground here and, and standing for what you believe in. And there was just a, a lot of good things that came from that. And I was really hoping, I guess, beyond hope too, when I first watched this, that Abraham Lincoln was truly Abraham Lincoln. And the way that he was portrayed was, I thought, very down to earth. And I really enjoyed it. Plus, you know, we got to see Scotty in a kilt. That was kind of you know, the first time for that. But the um, the only thing about it that, that fell short for me was the ending. It made no sense. Um, the good guys were, were outnumbered and it just turns into a brawl at the very end and you know, they fled, so you won. And after all of that, all of that big buildup throughout the episode, that was the only thing that kind of detracted it for me was I felt like they ran out of time and they could have tightened it up a little bit in maybe some certain areas so that it could have had a more appropriate ending that could have shown a true victory over evil due to something other than violence or using your head or something along those lines versus they fled, you won. Um but that's that's my take on the the Savage Curtain. It's interesting though in the couple of the choices that we talked about that you had a, an example of fixed combat conditions with this outside influence, with Specter of the Gun, with Savage Curtain, and with Day of the Dove. None of these people wanted to fight each other at all. You know they they were thrust in this situation where they were forced to fight to become basically uh, an experiment for these external alien forces. So I thought that was interesting. There's kind of like a little bit of a pattern that's going on there in season three. Um, there were, you know, it's kind of like the games there's a Treskelion, you know, it, that was the first time that I saw that particular model where, you know, uh, our crew, they were appropriated in certain ways, or they were forced in a situation to be the combatants of, of something that they didn't even want to be a part of, you know, just because, uh, they wanted to see alien races wanted to test their reactions or see if they're worthy or, you know, what have you. So I always thought that was kind of interesting to see, but great choices, uh, still on the highly diverse side, but you're right. We have, we are, let's see, two for Savage Curtain now, two for Spock's brain and two for all of our yesterdays. So let's see if we can actually get anything on the board because right now we are a big goose egg, the skata, they say, <laughs> for any type of a consolidation on our list. So here we go, the top three. And for uh, top three, I will start off. And my pick is Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. 
And the one of the reasons why I like this episode and it has come so far is because even though it is a very pointed episode when it comes to racism and bigotry and race relations, and there's really no denying that this episode is about that, it's how it's handled in the episode with just the deftness of acting skill that is Frank Gorshin. Frank Gorshin has literally taken this episode for me and pushed it to new heights because I love this Valjean Javert, and this is a, that's a Les Mis reference for anyone who wants to know, Les Miserables, this, this chase through time based solely on racism. 50,000 years that Bella was chasing Lokai for this reason, and this reason alone was that he was a criminal that was from a different race. That was extraordinary to me. And the way that Kirk and Spock, and they were trying to say like, no, this, you have to think differently. You have to be different. You can, you're choosing to do this because of what? You know, what's your reason? Do you even know anymore? And when they finally realize what happened in the end with their planet, they're like, your planet has destroyed itself because of the very reason you're chasing this criminal. And they still go down to the planet and continue that. And Kirk's like, well, you know what? It's, I love the ending because it was unresolved. They didn't know what to do. What do you do? What do you do when you're faced with a situation where both parties are so steeped in this particular bigotry that there's no way of getting through them? If you can't get through them in five in 50,000 years, how are you going to do it in 24 hours? But at least they made the attempt. I also love this episode because in terms of the, how it pays forward with Star Trek is because as far as I know, it's the first time that they did the destruct sequence on the Enterprise. And Kirk played that bluff right down to, what, seven seconds, six seconds? Because after five seconds, you can't countermand it. And it just, it made me feel the same way that I felt in Star Trek Three, where they did the destruct sequence. Because Kirk said, when, and this is what I love about him being in command of the Enterprise and how much he loves the ship. He said, no one is going to compromise this ship while I'm in command. It didn't happen then, and it didn't happen when the Klingons boarded. He would rather sacrifice the ship and protect the mission before anyone else gets a hold of it and uses it for their own purposes. So I thought that was fantastic. And Frank Gorshin made a legacy in his acting career wearing nothing but spandex. Because if you know Frank Gorshin's career, you know that he played the Riddler to the hilt in the Batman series in 1966. So... That was my my pick for number three. Let that be your last battlefield. All right. My uh, number three pick is going to be our first unanimous pick. All our yesterdays. There we go. Okay. Um, you know, again, for all the reasons that we've mentioned before. And, you know, of course, Mr. Ataz, how could I not pick this one? Um, but, I mean, we've got Spock traveling back in time with McCoy becoming emotional um, and my personal take on that is not so much because of the manipulation of the Atavicron, because it wasn't set correctly to have them be modified for that time period. More Vulcans are telepathic, and now he's in the past where there are just who knows how many Vulcans in the universe that are all unchecked emotions. So maybe that's feedback from that is coming in on him, and that's what's starting to cause him to... Um, lose it a little bit. Um, that's my personal take. You know, that's that's my headcanon. Um, but uh, also, you know, Zarabeth stole the show. Uh, and Mr. Ataz, I mean, Ian Wolf just did an amazing job in that role. I mean, 
he pops up around every other corner. <laughs> Can I help? How you? many of them are you? <laughs> How many are you? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're very late. So. <laughs> but yeah, you know, they no. and you know they did some great reuse of some of the old props and sets. You know the little uh, silver discs. Um, I think were left over from the Beta Five computer. Um, you know some of the the pieces of that made their way into the Atavicron. And it's just some great stuff going on there. The, uh, you know, the time period that Kirk was stuck in um, that uh, looked like uh, it was uh, some kind of medieval Middle Ages, kind of 17th, 18th century. Uh, very, you know, interesting how it showed different points in the history of Sarpedon. And the remastered edition, when the, when the star goes supernova, just amazing work. I agree. And when we're doing these rewatches, I think that, uh, are we all watching the HD? They are amazing. They are so good. They are so good. Especially like, um, in, I think it was in your last battlefield when they were like literally like flying in a circle, you could see the, the enterprise turn like left and it just kept going and going and going. It's just in there. There's just some amazing shots of everything from planets to the way that they re-render the Enterprise. And it gives such a more robust experience when you're watching these over again. So if you have the ability to do so, please watch the HD versions. I don't think that they lose any of the spiritual essence of the original series before they were remastered. I think that uh, they are, I think that's where they wanted to be. You know, obviously they didn't have the budgets to do it. So, okay, we're on the board with our, very first unanimous decision pick with all of our yesterdays. So, Ken, any good news for us on number three? Number three, Spectre of the Gun is my number three. Okay. Okay. So, uh, I, I, I like how as we get through this and that there's already been a lot of detail on why we've chosen these. But uh, for me in particular, I, you know what it was? It was the sets. It was the whole setup. Uh, I, I I must agree that I, I love when they when they when they take you know, um, a very difficult financial situation and they turn it into an advantage and the way that it was all set up, you're just, you're, you're just walking through a play, so to speak, and you're going to have to prove it to us. And this is, this is the ground you're playing. It's, it's, uh, it was really, really well done, I thought. And, you know, for all the reasons that you spoke to before, all the reasons that I really love this episode is you're trying to prove something that's very difficult to prove and then it becomes really an exercise of mind over matter and, and kind of turning it all um, upside down in order to actually, quote unquote, win. But uh, great episode. And that's why I have it as number three. The funny thing is about that, when it comes to that detail about the budget, yeah. it's not that it had the lowest budget. It's that it came in on budget and that budget was low. <laughs> <laughs> As all the budgets were in season three, and we mentioned that with Spock's brain. But right. yeah, I I just love the fusion of science fiction and Western. Always have. That's why I love Firefly. That's why a lot of people love Firefly. That's yeah, why people love show. Han Solo and his, you know, his cowboy attitude and charm. You know, it's he has that gunslinger attitude. So okay, yeah. I mean, that's like that it. for me at, at least. And and Mal Reynolds is the same. It's just this gunslinger attitude in space. So yeah, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So we have episode three. We have Let That Be Your Last Battlefield for me and for Ataz will be all our yesterdays. And for Ken, the chief said Spectre of the Gun. 
So we are coming down to probably, I think they were tough, but they were probably weren't that tough, you know, considering that this is season three. So we are at number two and number one. My number two pick is Day of the Dove. And I call this the spiritual bookend to Errand of Mercy because, you know, we've covered this earlier. We have Day of the Dove. Is is this our second unanimous? Jeff, did you pick Day of the Dove yet? No. Okay. So it'd be you and I, Ken, did Day of the Dove. The reason why I have this so high is because this is where I wanted the next Klingon appearance to be after Errand of Mercy. And John Colicos wasn't, he wasn't available. He was under a different contract uh, for a different project at the time. And even though that we didn't get John Colicos, who I would have loved to have seen reprise core, we made up for with Michael Ansara's Kang because he was superb as a Klingon for every reason you want to, to see, um, another Klingon interpreted as much as I, and, and, and I dig William Campbell's performance as Koloth, but you had that additional and more logical world building with all of the Klingons and Mara the very first time. And I think the only time that we saw uh, a Klingon female who is uh, his science officer and his wife, I believe. So you have this entire structure now that you're building in with the Klingon empire, not just you know, a leader and a handful of, of foot soldiers. You're seeing that they are an entire race of beings that are dedicated to this military machine, even their wives. <laughs> so it's just a fantastic episode. I think it it sells you on this, this struggle between the Federation and the Klingons. And there's a really nice aspect of um, this very fragile detente between the Federation and the Klingons. And it's something that they built on and something that resonates forward with what happens with the sons of Moog and Picard being the, uh, um, what do they call his position in the next generation? He was the arbiter and how that all kind of paid off with the, the battle of Narendra three and how the Federation had, they always had a tenuous relationship and the Klingons always kind of like pushed the envelope, but you saw that there was the ability to be able to broker some type of a neutrality or peace between these two powers, as long as the, the definitions were very solid. So in this case, in day of the dove, the definition was either we work together or we die all the time over time. And I don't think we can afford to do that. So it's like being uh, an immortal and only having the worst parts of it. You know, the pain and the suffering and the agony and just having it washed, rinse, and repeat. It's like the worst version of Groundhog Day ever. So <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, yeah. You know, so uh, for my number two pick, it would be Day of the Dove. How about you, Atos? Number two. Uh, my number two is the Tholian Web. Um, I really enjoyed this, again, for the links to uh, Enterprise and to other shows. Um you know, we have uh, um, references to this episode in several books and comic books as well. I mean, it just keeps getting picked up and referred to all the time throughout uh, throughout the, the different uh, tie-in media. Um, I've seen at least three or four different Rescue the Defiant stories. Uh, it's uh, it's just uh, something that uh, it's it hit the right nerve uh, with the. Uh, with fandom, I think. And there's a lot to be said there. You know, they, they get affected by this inner space. It drives them nuts. They start fighting each other. We see these characters who 
up to this point have always worked together to overcome a problem suddenly at each other's throats. And that puts you in the position of thinking, well, how are they going to get out of this? Uh, and it's then complicated by there's another crew out there from another constitution class ship, just like the enterprise, the crew is presumably just as talented as the enterprise and they're all dead because they couldn't do it. And that just ratchets the tension right up right there. That's a very good point. Now, that's actually a really good point. I didn't really think about it that way. And you're right. It, there's a ticking time bomb situation mm-hmm. that's going off yeah. without the captain. <laughs> so yeah. great, and great pick. They yep. even just recently yeah. retold this story in the, uh, the comics for the new timeline too. And they did a, a different take on it. It's called the Tholian webs, plural. Um, and it's just the enterprise caught in the webs this time, but uh, they actually like, they do a saucer separation and, get caught in two separate webs and then they have to try to overcome everything and then work together to get out the saucer and the engineering section out of the two separate webs and get back together. I thought it was nice that in the HD version, when they redid a little bit more of the Tholian effect for mm-hmm. the, um, for the, uh, the aliens, uh, that they, they were a little bit more similar to what we saw in enterprise when we actually saw a full bodied Tholian in Phlox's, um, well, the evil Phlox's, uh, Decon chamber. Yeah. So. And the thing I loved about that was that actually referred back to one of the novels because up to that point, the only other time we saw him was in the comic books and they drew him to look like, like miniature humanoids with giant heads. But, uh, in one of the, uh, um, lost era novels, the Sulu one, um, the Sundered, they actually described them as looking like scorpions and they had them with a tail in, uh, in that story. But, Except for dropping the tail from from the uh, characters, they looked almost exactly how they were described in that book. Yeah, almost like like crystalline giant crystalline spiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the Tholian web uh, it's very far reaching in Star Trek for sure, and that's that's without a doubt. Great pick. Um, and we're going to round out number two with Ken's pick. Ken, number two, Tholian web. Oh, there we go. Twice today, Mr. Atos. That's twice today. Wow. We've come up on the same page. You know, Norm and I have been pretty locked in these last few lists, but Jeff comes <laughs> in strong this week with uh, uh, with a lot of similar uh, picks and rankings. So, you know, we've we've t- this will be the third time we talk about the Tholian web. But for me, again, essential viewing. Why? Because it's continuity across the um, the different, especially with Enterprise and. And, and a mirror darkly and just the fact that it's 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 a really good episode now I, I do agree with you norm to the point where i thought it uh dr mccoy went a little sharp a little fast um it was it was over the top but to prove a point i guess but the rest of it uh, i thought played played very very well and you know it was um it was it was a fun episode in terms of just watching that technology that they came up with, especially the Tholian technology. Very clever, you know. When you're when you're running on a shoestring budget, and you you put that together, um, that 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 took a lot of work. That took a lot of guts to to pull that off. So I I, I was impressed with it, and uh, I really I really thought that when I was watching Star Trek when I was younger, the Tholian web when that came on, that was like oh, got to sit down and pay attention. I, I I really enjoyed it. So that's my number two. That's awesome. And I think that's awesome that you guys both picked that. So you both picked Tholian and Webb and you both picked Spock's brain. And I think now for our listeners out there, we don't show each other our lists. We don't talk about them beforehand, but 
if I were going to pull my best Spock, I have to believe that our number one pick is probably going to be universal. I just have a sneaky feeling. I'm not 100% sure because Ataz throws a wrench in it sometimes. He did last time when he when we both went with Doomsday Machine and you chose Journey to Babel uh, for our number one pick. I think it was Journey to Babel, was it, for number one? Yeah. But then you guys don't have to uh, uh, acknowledge this at all when I say my number one pick. But my number one pick for season three is going to be the Enterprise Incident. I think the Enterprise Incident is actually one of the best episodes of Star Trek in general, let alone season three. I actually, I have in my notes, I call it the bookend, the spiritual bookend to Balance of Terror. It's the only other time that we actually see another Romulan. And from every aspect of this production, from, and knowing that the budget was slashed, but you have Joanne Linville as the Romulan commander, and it's probably one of the best written characters in Star Trek. You have Spock's seduction and subversion at the same time. And the way that Leonard Nimoy plays that particular aspect of his character is just amazing. You see Kirk, uh, at least you see Shatner going off as no Shatner has gone off before, but he did it in such a way where you can see the end result of him turning into uh, a Romulan centurion. And I think that's the first time that we ever saw William Shatner in that kind of makeup. So we're getting a lot of firsts here. You get to actually see what the cloaking device is. You get to see on the Romulan, you actually get to go through a Romulan ship um, as a disguised D7 uh, battlecruiser. There are so many things in this episode that are quintessentially iconic Star Trek touchstones. But the reason why it's number one is just because it's the first time that you actually see someone in command, this Romulan commander in command, who's so effective and for 1968 to 69, this season, a female being so effective and so well-written and so revered in this position was just so refreshing. She wasn't just a, a yes character or a support character. She was very much the character that created a lot of change in this episode, and especially in herself, because what Spock had to do and pretty much undermine every one of her decisions while under the guise of romance and uh, becoming a traitor to the Federation was just unbelievable. Their chemistry on screen was on fire. And it gave us probably one of the best Spock lines ever. And when he said, when the captains or the, com- the commander said, you know, how could you do this to me? Who are you that you could do this to me? And with just the deadest, straightest, emotionless answer, first officer of the Enterprise, I'm like, that's what sells it to me. That's Star Trek. That's Spock, uh, Kirk putting it all on the line. Even Scotty getting his due in there, you know, with uh, with being in command in the con. It's just everything there works for me, not just for season three, but for all of Star Trek. So my pick, the Enterprise and Incident for number one. How about you, Jeff? Everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, something new. Uh, yeah, Come on, bring it, up something this new. This is also my number one pick. Um, I, I'm agreeing with you. I think that... Uh, we may very well be the first time on these uh, that we're unanimous on our number one pick because I had a different pick for number one both of the previous seasons. Um, yeah, I mean, you you nailed it. Um, everything about this episode is, again, one of the best, if not the best, episodes of Star Trek. Uh, I mean, it's got, you know, the, the Rhyming the Commander just 
blows it out of the water. I mean, she is, from the second she is on screen, you know that she is absolutely professional, absolutely in command, and she is a force to be reckoned with that Kirk has to handle very carefully to get out of the situation, and Spock even more so. And Spock just plays it. I mean, like we said, uh, for... I think uh, the title of our last uh, episode when we uh, did the commentary on this, Spock's a Stone Cold Player. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he, uh, he played her like a uh, very finely crafted musical instrument because, I mean, start to finish, he had her eating out of the palm of his hand and then at the end when she realizes that she, betrayed, uh, she was betrayed by him, it's... And he, you know, just that really smooth motion, pulling down the communicator, you know, putting away his, uh, uh, you know, contacting the Enterprise and then just smoothly putting it away. I mean, it's just some great, great material in this episode. And I think season three probably would have gotten uh, better reception uh, from uh, the uh, the perspective uh, in history if they had opened the season with this episode instead of Spock's brain. Because this was the second episode, and it was a much stronger episode. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm crossing my fingers here, uh, hopefully, that you have, um, you've called it right here, Jeff. So, Ken, mm-hmm. our chief, is, are we going to get the turkey here, or what? We are. We are. So, Enterprise Incident is my number one pick. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, it's all the things you guys said, plus one other element that I thought was very important to the whole, I guess, canon and lineage of Star Trek, especially the original series, because in my mind, I guess, and in a lot of the things that I watch, if if Star Trek was supposed to be some sort of, of you know, theoretical reality, you know, optimistic, all those other things... The one thing I did not think that was realistic was that the United Federation of Planets could survive on the charity of evil. And what I mean by that is you had Klingons and you had Romulans that were warlike, that were conquering. Uh, the Organia Peace Treaty keeps the Klingons at bay. There's nothing to keep the Romulans at bay. And they had such a technological advantage with that cloaking device. And that for the Federation to actually survive and be able to, I guess, thwart their enemy, uh, they needed to get their hands on that technology. It was a true risk to the Federation. It does two things. It shows you that Kirk and the Federation are willing to do what it takes in order for them to survive. It was very provocative, but at the same time, it kept that balance between the two militaries even. And when that all switches again for the next generation, none of that to me is believable. You know, that that you, you sign a treaty and the bad guys will never come and you can never use that technology. And I know there's a lot of things behind that. But to me, it made it very, very real that we will do what is necessary to protect ourselves. No one gets hurt. No one gets killed. It's a piece of technology. It's the espionage game. You know, we've been playing it for many, many years uh, throughout our history. But if you look at the Cold War, and this was right in the middle of the Cold War when this was filmed, when this when this was produced, those were the things that were going back and forth, trying to one-up. It became a technology play. And what brought down the Soviet Empire wasn't... Um, anything more than they could not figure out a way to to defeat the B-2 bomber. 
you know, once we started going stealth, that was it. They could no longer afford to play in this game anymore. And, you know, we did never, we never used it as an offensive weapon against our enemy, the Soviet Union, just like I don't believe the Federation would use it as an invasion force. They did it for defense, but it's a crucial element for Star Trek for me and a very big reason why I really like this episode. Yeah, I mean, this, this is probably going to be one of the top episodes that we all agree on when it comes to like the essentials 15. You know, when we take each one of these episodes, take the five episodes that we've chosen along with the help of the Babel Conference and figure out in those episodes, what are the top episodes in terms of their rank and, and their influence and, and, and relevance to Star Trek with the criteria that we have. But I'm going to ask you a, a quick question and, uh, and I don't want to linger on this for too long, but is the Enterprise incident so good in season three relative to the rest of the episodes because the episodes in season three are so mediocre? I mean, is it really that good to the point where it is it re- it reaches that type of that stratosphere as one of the best episodes of all time in the original series? Does it go up there with things like the Doomsday Machine? You know, that's. For me, those are kind of almost like lockstep. Those are some of the top episodes ever. But it's it's like, you know, when you have like a really strong candidate for something is because the other candidates are so mediocre. It makes this one logically and obviously better. So what do you think about that? I would say that it is one of the better episodes of all of Star Trek. And that, um, that soliloquy that I just went through for those reasons, made it very powerful to me. Now, when I was a much younger guy watching this stuff, I couldn't tell you season one, two, and three apart, really, other than the little dynamics or the change in the credits. But when I started watching it, the the, the television stations out here in Boston, uh, Channel 56, if I remember right, um, when they would show it, they, they weren't showing them in order. So I, I wouldn't be able to follow it from one one to the next. And the Enterprise incident was always one of my top episodes. And so I would say that it it isn't because the other episodes in in season three are more mediocre. I think it's just a great episode that stands across the lexicon of the original series. Mm-hmm. How about you, Atos? Well, uh, like we were saying with some of the other episodes we talked about tonight, I mean, there's several other episodes that are just outstanding. I mean, we got all our yesterdays, we got the Tholian web, we've got, you know, those are the other ones that we agreed on unanimously that are just Mm -hmm. outstanding episodes. Plus, you know, we've got four other episodes that at least two of us agreed on. And that's quite a few episodes there from this season that stood out enough that I don't think that the episodes for this season are mediocre. There are a few that weren't as good. But they were still pretty decent episodes, and they're still pretty entertaining, you know. And like Ken said, when I, when I was watching these as a kid in reruns, I didn't know one season from the next. I just knew it was Star Trek, and it was on. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I just I and I agree with you both. I just want to kind of like uh, throw the devil's advocate out there because it's so good for all the reasons that we've listed. It's just one of those special moments in TV, and I'm glad that. I'm glad that the original series has that because it, it's such a great foundation for all of us to say and recommend, please watch this episode because you're going to be doing yourself a favor, new fan. This is what Star Trek is at its best. You know, City on the Edge of Forever, The Doomsday Machine, um, uh, The Enterprise Incident, Amok Time. I mean, there, there are just those that are just so classically significant, uh, Journey to Babel, um, that 
it, it's hard to imagine the series without these touchstones in them because they're so they're so um, instrumental in the world building. So, okay, so we have episode one, unanimous decision, the Enterprise incident, followed by the second uh, unanimous decision we have in the Tholian web, and third unanimous decision we have with all our yesterdays. Now, again, what we did for the first episode of the Essentials Collection, and that was episode 119, we're going to take the remaining episodes and I'm going to post those to the Babel Conference. And this time I'm going to lock the post because I don't want people adding any more choices than what we already have. Because we have several episodes that have two votes and a couple that have one vote. We have Spock's Brain with two votes. We have the Savage Curtain with two votes. We have Spectre of the Gun with two votes. And we have a couple with one so those are going to be listed later on. Day of the Dove on. had two, two votes as well. And Day of the Dove had two votes. So I'm going to list those, and and perhaps I should just only list the ones with two. There's about because four those right seem, there to choose from. That's a pretty good selection. Right. I did that yeah. last time. I think I only did the ones with two votes. So those are going to be the tiebreaker episodes that we are going to need your help with on the Babel Conference to help us pick episodes four and five for this particular list. And once that's all done and we get the poll for season two, we're going to revisit this and figure out the top 15 episodes for the essentials. And that's going to be a lot of fun. So that's pretty much it for season three. I think we, I think we did a really great job doing our homework and really presenting strong pros and cons for each one of these episodes that, that we believe that we've done our due diligence according to the rules, according to that lens, I say, that we are trying to project these, our opinions through. So be on the lookout on the Babel Conference for all of our posts for this episode. Now, before we wrap this up, we have another email through Hailing Frequencies. So if we could open Hailing Frequencies, please. Hailing Frequencies are open. We had an email from T. Singh, and T. has written us uh, a really thought-provoking email, a couple of different questions in this email. T. writes, hi, guys. Really enjoy the show. It helps to kill time when walking the dog and working in the office. I just had some potential points of discussion that I thought might make for interesting episodes if you ever run out of ideas. The first point, is Starfleet a homo sapiens only club? We all know Starfleet is open to all, and this is the case by TNG and in Star Trek 09, but in TOS, the Enterprise is mostly crewed by humans. Spock seems to be the sole alien apart from the animated series. Plus, if Spock is the only Vulcan in Starfleet, how is the USS Intrepid crewed entirely by Vulcans? That's not very inclusive. In short, is Starfleet racist or restrained by budget in terms of the real world? I'm going to throw that to you, Jeff, for a brief answer. And this is also something we should consider looking at for future episodes. Well, I think first, this was a budget issue with the original series. With the animated series, they didn't have that problem. We had uh, Imres, we had uh, Eric's, we had a couple of others. Um, but like there was the mention of an all Vulcan ship uh, and some other uh, uh, books and comics, there have been references to the USS Eagle being an all Andorian ship. So there were other races in Starfleet. It's just, they tended at the time, at the time of this show that again, tying into the budget, uh, this was the explanation was that they just all tended to be all one species on each ship. Um, 
and also I can see from a logistical standpoint that would make sense too because you don't have to worry about the different food and hygiene and medical requirements for half a dozen different species. But as those problems went away um, with uh, advances in technology perhaps, then I could see them starting to add more crew members like we see with Spock and later with Imres and with Eric's. Okay. No, it makes a lot of sense. And we can, these are great questions T and we're going to explore these a little bit more further, but I just wanted to make sure that your email was read and let's get to your second point here. Female captains in TOS Starfleet, you've just missed international women's day, but love to hear about how Starfleet went from the Janice Lester situation to Madge Sinclair as the first female and black captain in Star Trek four. So Ken, would you like to field this? I mean, what did you think about that question? I think it's a good show question. I also, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit different, I think, as, as, I, as I've gotten older. I, I don't link into everything that's said as being canon all the time. And I took that, that, that comment in Turnabout Intruder to be a one-off by a bad writer that somehow got through, because it just doesn't make any sense, even in, in the original series, when you consider that uh, the very first pilot had the executive officer as a female. Now, you can't be the executive officer and just assume if the captain gets uh, immobilized that you can't take command. So it, it just it just never made much sense to me. And, you know, it just as they demonstrated with the Romulan commander, you know, women can be in charge and they are in charge in the original series. I look at this as a one-off and I don't look at it like they took a, a huge leap and a large journey to get where they got to when uh, Madge Sinclair uh, was in Star Trek IV for that, that brief moment on the Saratoga. But I do, I do believe that um, one thing that they were back then was extremely progressive, but one line in one episode has created a lot of damage and has really hurt, I think, the, uh, the show's integrity a little bit. For those that just say, oh, it's absolutely canon, I for one say, no, it's not. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm taking my toys and going home with that one with my arms crossed because definitely that is not what, uh, what the vision was of this show. It was a one-off. Yeah, I mean, even in Enterprise, they retconned that fairly strongly with Captain Erica Hernandez being in charge of the second Warp 5 capable ship, that would be the NX-02 Columbia. So they, they obviously, you're right, Ken, they obviously made a poor decision in that particular line of writing. Not even the whole episode, that just that particular line of writing. That was also retconned a little bit in TNG, and that was the very first stunt Mr. Atod's question, who was the first female captain, that we, uh, the youngest female captain, or the youngest captain in Starfleet, and she was female. And that was... Um, Trila Scott. Charles Scott, right. So I tried to stump him right there, but he, uh, he won't fall for my tricks. So, okay. So T, so for that particular qu- part of your question, yes. Um, you can see that, uh, we have a, a, a variety of examples that will, uh, completely retcon, uh, that issue that, um, your question has brought up because obviously with number one in the cage being, um, you know, a female commander who would take over if Pike was incapacitated, Erica Hernandez, Madge Sinclair, uh, and countless other examples. Um, they just made a poor decision uh, and it just stuck. And it's unfortunate, but we're trying to write that situation with being able to answer questions like this. So thanks so much for your email. 
keep listening to the show. Please send us the questions, any more questions that you have. We love hearing your enthusiasm and thanks for just being on this journey with us because Star Trek isn't just one episode or one movie or one book. It's this entire tapestry of entertainment and you're going to find a lot of value in there uh, as you continue along with us in all the different shows on Trek FM. So final thoughts, gentlemen, on season three, The Essentials. One thing I'd like to add on uh, um, that last point on the the email is that also, in addition to that, we have uh, a note from Gene Roddenberry saying that that line was a mistake and that he regretted having it in there. Um, and beyond that, also, in the novels, we have the U.S. Uh, was it the um, Endeavor? Uh, in the Vanguard novels and the captain of that vessel, these novels take place at the same time as the original series. The novel, the captain of that vessel is a woman and she's incredibly capable. Uh, she's written to be a very strong character in, in those books. Okay. So again, there's just a little bit more world building involved and you'll eventually get to that as you expand your knowledge in the Star Trek base. Cause there's a lot more to get to. Yeah, there's, okay. there's a lot out there and it's, it's hard to keep it all straight sometimes. Right. I'm sure the writers don't even get to keep it all straight. <laughs> That's <laughs> why they hire so people much out like there. me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, gentlemen, it was Brian fantastic. Fuller, I'm available. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So, it, 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 wouldn't it be awesome if he was listening to this podcast? Yeah. So, uh, But, guys, that was great. That was a fantastic deliberation on Season 3 of The Essentials. But that's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek FM this past week. So, here are a couple of things that we have been talking about elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. You've heard Chief Trip sign on. Uh, I'm serious, Ken. Actually, out of the chair, please. Okay, okay. God. <laughs> I guess the Commodore has the con. <laughs> Earl Grey. Did you really write down Grobbler Zorn on this list? <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> this is before he achieved Grobbler rank. He was only a Soplar. He wasn't a Grobbler lad. What fruit did he like before he got to apples? <laughs> the orb. I want to hear Worf give a command sometime like, one quarter ramming speed. And then <laughs> yes. someone says, Captain. Regulation specifically states that we cannot go at one quarter ramming speed while we are in orbit of a planet. (laughs) The ready room. To what extent is this episode, uh, you know, the the writers and producers of Deep Space Nine turning the mirror back at the fans? You know, I mean, I think all of us Star Trek fans at one point or another probably retreat into this universe we love, Star Trek, that is, it's a fictional world. What are you talking about, Zachary? Are you you suggesting that, like, fans (laughs) might decide to buy microphones and, like, talk about it like it's real for hours on end? To the journey! Next one in line is Spirit Folk, and we already agreed that that is just not necessary for anybody, and let's not torture them with it. Good, let's move on. The characters in the Fairhaven Hollow program begin to suspect (laughs) the Voyager crew after they witness several supernatural occurrences. Commentary, Trek Stars. Tokyo Drift really is the perfect subtitle. Like, you could literally put Tokyo Drift onto the end of any movie, and it would instantaneously become a movie that you would have to see. Citizen Kane, Tokyo Drift. The 602 Club. I hate it when shows that are grounded in reality, but obviously they're not, and they have their characters go through socially important uh, experiences. 
literary treks. It is very much every one of the characters, you know, who, who finds themselves sort of pulled into the conflict that's the heart of this story. They are reacting to a fear of the other. Meta treks. I'd love to answer your question, but I can't get the uh, visual image out of my mind of <laughs> B. Arthur and Betty White in Starfleet miniskirts and go-go boots. I can totally picture the Golden Girls as Klingons. <laughs> Melodic treks. What I decided to do was not only would I pick a six degree of separation, not only would I do it musically, but I was only going to do movies that were composed by people who had composed for Star Trek. Saturday Morning Trek. Dorothy had a little bit of a fit with the uh, animators. They had said over and over again, there is no moon in the Vulcan sky. I think it was like the first episode that aired of the original series when they mentioned this, because Uhura walks up to Spock and she's like, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me that I would look good in your moon. And he's like, Vulcan has no moon. I'm not surprised. <laughs> that is an uncanny Uhura. Continuing mission. Yeah, and of course, another great thing is when it's it's all finished and you look at it and go, yeah, we made that together, yeah. That's, that's one of the greatest moments and people respond to it and say, oh, that's, that's pretty well made, the effects are great, the actors are, are great, uh, even though they're Dutch trying to speak English, right? <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So as we wrap down this show, Mr. Atos, could you please tell everyone how they can listen to our show, Standard Orbit on Trek FM, and all the other offerings that we have elsewhere around the network and across subspace? Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek FM, and you can grab the RSS link there as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us to increase our visibilities for new listeners. And you're absolutely right, Jeff. Thanks so much for mentioning that. There are a couple of different ways also, aside from listening to the network, that you can support us. And one of those, and probably the most essential for us as a volunteer organization, an organization that doesn't generate any revenue, is patreon.com slash trekfm. And Ken does such a great job at discussing this particular aspect of our production. So please, Ken... Let everyone know how they can get involved supporting us through Patreon.com. Sure, short and sweet. Patreon is the system Trek.fm employs to allow the fans to financially support our network. So please go to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Trek.fm. Your support allows us to bring world-class quality podcasting without commercial interruption. Whatever dollar amount you can contribute is very much appreciated. If you have the means and can donate $15 per month, that allows you to sit on the Patrons Roundtable podcast. And if you could up that to $25 a month, not only do you get to do the Roundtable podcast, but it adds the credit of associate producer to whichever show you decide. The entire team of Standard Orbit are all contributors to Patreon, so we do practice what we preach, and we'd love for you to join our team. So we thank you very, very much for your support. 
And we'd also like to thank and specifically point out a couple of our associate producers for the show for Standard Orbit. We have Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge. And thank you so much for supporting us and supporting our efforts and not just the Refit team, but you know, you were doing this with uh, Mike and Drew in the past. So thank you for your continued patronage through patreon.com. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701 and Richard at RUT8972. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here on Trek FM, you can find us in a variety of different ways. If you go to trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, you can find us there. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. And the Babel Conference is an incredible tool for all of us to use to come together as fans on Facebook. So just please type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at Trek FM and click discussion on the menu bar. You can find me there. You can find Jeff there. You can find the chief there. You can find an, a, all the hosts and all the fans that come to the conference and talk about all the different issues that you enjoy when it comes to either your Trek FM shows or just anything in Star Trek in general. And if you don't like talking about Star Trek all the time, we have the 602 Club that is run by another host, Matthew Rushing, who's an executive producer of the show, or of Trek FM, and he also talks about everything that's not Trek. So give that show a listen because you'll find a lot of value there. So Ken, for all of our listeners, how can they get in touch with you if they would like to discuss about anything about Star Trek or just in general across the interwebs? Yeah, if anyone's looking to strike up a conversation, you can find me on the Babel Conference. That's where I hang out on Facebook. Uh, feel free to IM me with uh, any questions or, or anything you'd like to see us do better. And if you would like to uh, pose a question for Stump Mr. Atos. That's our contest where we come up with a question that uh, Jeff cannot see in advance. And if you are able to stump him with a Star Trek quiz uh, question within the lexicon of Star Trek now, we're not talking production or whatever, but Star Trek itself, uh, then uh, and, and he's unable to answer the question, then we will get you a red bubble shirt of your choice and send it to you. So please feel free to reach out. I look forward to hearing from everyone. Thanks, Ken. And Jeff, Mr. Ataz, hopefully that uh, we will get a couple of stump questions for you because we're a little light here uh, in the IM department. So please take Ken up on his offer because we would like to try to get you a t-shirt from redbubble.com. So how about you, Jeff? How can our listeners get in touch with you across subspace? Well, so far, we're one and one on the stump question. So, you know, at this point, you might have a pretty good chance. <laughs> um, yep. Well, if you don't have access to an Atavicron or even a tricked-out DeLorean, uh, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. And uh, Ken, by the way, uh, my uh, apologies to Schmedlap for having to clean up the uh, residue from those flaming uh, tire tracks on the shuttle bay floor. Uh, oh, boy. I'm the uh, co-host here on the network for both Standard Orbit and Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm also on Twitter at Harlander, and I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon. You can also check out my website, which has been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek, and that's at trekopedia.com, and my independent comic books at bandwidthcomics.com, or search for them on Facebook for Bandwidth Comics. So Schmedlap's cleaning up the residue of the, of the fiery tire tracks, and an empty scratch has the out-of-time license plate. 
So you tell him to give that to me because I want that. I want that for my wall. I think he needs to wait for it right. to uh, uh, warm back up. It's too cold. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference, as I mentioned before. You can find me on Twitter at Starfighter1701. And along with being a host and an executive producer on the network, I'm also a patron of the network on patreon.com slash trek.fm. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here on Trek.fm for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>